0: This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I am joined today by Professor Chris Freeman who is an associate professor at the College, college of William and Mary. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So we're gonna get into your amazing book, Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics, and ruffle some feathers, but before we do, I'd wonder if you could give us a bit of a background about how you became a professional philosopher, which is a strange vocation, and why political philosophy specifically?
1: Well, I think, well, I've got to say, I think this interview's already peaked. You called the book amazing, and so it can only go downhill. I don't know if I want to continue. Uh, But yeah, it it is a strange vocation to be a professional philosopher. I would say that I was doing rudimentary philosophy before I even knew what philosophy was. So it was fairly common in my household when I was growing up to just have debates. And you could could call them arguments. That makes it sound more combative than it is. But just, you know, uh, can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it kind of questions. And I always just really, really loved that kind of debate and argument. And as I got older, I learned that, that there was this thing called philosophy, and there were these people called philosophy professors who who did this sort of thing for a living. You could, you know, you could earn money—not a lot of money—but you could earn some money doing it. I was like, okay, that, that's kind of cool. Uh, I think if I could get a job like that, uh, I would, I would want it. It would be like, you know, somebody saying, "You uh, can have a job being a professional ice cream taster." They're like, okay, like if I get paid to do that, I'll do it. That was kind of my attitude towards philosophy. And as, as you know, chance would have it, uh, you know, I went to college, I majored in philosophy, went straight into grad school, uh, did philosophy, and got a job. And yeah, the, the, the rest is history, I would say.
0: You know, I don't normally do this, but I wanted to ask you a follow up question about, um, I guess, you personally. I know your wife is a scientist, I don't know like what she does, but I'm curious how it is a philosopher being married to a scientist. It seems like one is sort of head in the clouds, the other one's a little more hard-nosed, data-driven.
1: That, that, that is correct, yes. My wife is a research scientist, and that is an accurate description, not just professionally, but also personally, I think. She she is the one, she's very, she's very practical, uh, she gets things done. Whereas I'm more, you know, let's, you know, you know, here's a thought experiment, let's deliberate about how these things. So it, it works, I think. It's good to have that balance.
0: So you have a recent book that just came out called Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics. Not only do I love the incendiary uh, title, but it's quite relevant given we have an election coming up. So I wanted to jump right in and start off with a number of objections that I hear for against ignoring politics. So why you should be involved, voting, protesting, canvassing, that sort of thing. Um, we're told that this is the most important election of our lifetime. And apparently I've lived through a lot of these because I hear that a lot. But it seems like if the stakes are really that high, then isn't that a reason to vote?
1: Yes, that's a good question. And and actually I, I am inclined to believe that this election is more important than the typical election. You're right, every election seems to be called the most important election of our lifetime. I actually think there's some some reason that might be true in this case. However. I think the move from saying uh, the election or politics in general is very high impact to the claim that this obligates you to vote or somehow get engaged in a political process, that move just doesn't work because there are lots of things that are really high impact that people don't have an obligation to get involved with. So just to take a standard sort of example, farming is really high impact. We need people making food so that people don't starve. That's really high impact. But from the fact that farming uh, is very high impact, it doesn't follow that any particular individual is obligated to become a farmer. So you could say elections are sort of similar. You know, elections are high impact. I think that's, that's right. This one might be particularly high impact. But we would need some other argument to establish that you have an individual obligation to participate in this thing.
0: Well, suppose Election Day 2020 comes and goes and Trump's reelected, and you complain to your friend that Bozo, that Orange Bozo got reelected, and your friend asks, well, did you vote? And you say no, to which people will often retort, if you don't vote, then you don't have the right to complain.
1: Yes, this is a very important objection. I take this objection very seriously because I... Love to complain, uh, just in general, but about politics in particular. So I, I I need to have a good response to this objection because I do want to be able to complain. And my response, in in brief, is that this sort of if if you don't do this, you can't complain. Argument. It works in cases where doing that thing would have prevented the bad thing from happening. So, in other words, you know, I I don't know. I have I I have. my lower back is, you know, like not in great shape. Like I wake up and my back is stiff and it's painful. And somebody could say to me, you know, look, if you did 20 minutes of yoga every morning, then your back would feel better. And I say, I don't want to do that. And then they say, well, okay. But then you can't really complain about the sore back because you had it within your power to change it. That seems to me a reasonable objection to complaining about my sore back. But the election is very different because it's not as though casting a vote is actually going to change anything. So if I had it within my power to change the outcome of the election and I didn't do it and then I complained, that would seem to be in some sense illicit. But I can't really do anything uh, about the outcome of the election. And so it still seems like I reserve the right to complain about the bad outcome simply because it's bad. So an analogy would be, uh, you know, I don't know. If uh, you want to complain about the outcome of the election, you have to throw a penny in the wishing well and wish for the outcome to be a certain way. And if you don't do that, you can't complain. That would be strange, because it's not as though throwing the penny in the wishing well is actually going to change anything about the election. And in terms of the probability of actually changing the outcome of votes, only slightly less uh, likely to impact the election than the
0: penny in the wishing There's a passage early on in your book that I wanted to read to preface my next question, because I think it really captures nicely the sort of sentiment that I get from students and family members, friends, when I talk about this issue. You say, um, to get a sense of just how strongly people feel about political participation, consider the case of San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick, who became famous for kneeling in protests during the national anthem, didn't vote in the 2016 presidential election. Even though Kaepernick donated $1 million of his salary and all the proceeds from his Jersey sales to charity, he was admonished in the pages of Forbes on the ground that his, quote, failure to vote tarnishes his credibility as a social activist, end quote. Kaepernick's donations and volunteering efforts apparently uh, only take his, quote, message so far. In order to enact long-lasting social change, he must take part in the democratic process, end quote. So, it's very bizarre that that, that like a million dollars is a lot of money, right? Kaepernick lending his name to these causes, yeah. um, that's worth a lot in publicity. Um, presumably, his wor- his value, the value of his vote could not exceed that. Um, I mean, maybe I'm naive here, but what what do you think is the source of the vitriol or the sort of the sentiment behind that outrage?
1: That, that's totally right, especially so. Uh, you know, have he voted in California? the value of his vote uh, is virtually zero and it really is remarkable. So the value of his donations was over a million dollars and the value of the vote he could have cast would be, I don't know, a, a penny, maybe, maybe a couple of a couple of cents, who knows. And, and yet he was still admonished for, for not voting. Uh, in terms of the, the source of the vitriol, I, I think that's a great question. And frankly, I don't have a great answer. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's definitely become part of, uh, you know, our culture in, in the United States where, you know, you just have to vote. This is your civic duty. And if you don't do it, you're doing something that's extraordinarily wrong. And this is actually a more powerful moral duty than your duty to do things that, that will actually make a difference. So like Kaepernick's donations actually made a difference. Like they, they helped people. Uh, his vote would not have helped anyone. And yet he got heavily criticized for not voting. And somehow the, the million dollars worth of good he did elsewhere was not enough to, to offset this uh, th- this horrible thing he did by not voting. Um, yeah, and, and, and I wish I had a better answer as to what, so I, I certainly have the same sort of uh, experience where people are scandalized by this claim that you don't have a duty to vote. And I think something like 90% of Americans think that you have this duty. Um, I don't know, this is just the sort of thing that maybe you're taught in elementary school and you, you keep getting taught and it's reinforced by your peers. And so you, you come to believe it. That's not, not to say that there, there aren't good arguments in favor of voting, even though I'm not persuaded. I think there, there are still some reasonable arguments. Uh, but I, I, I don't think that the arguments in favor of voting are quite strong enough to justify the reaction that somebody like Kaepernick gets for not voting.
0: And Just to add to that a little bit, um, what's puzzling, too, is that you find this vitriol even among people who agree with Kaepernick agree with his the issues he cares about, his moral, his moral and political values. Like, it's not even a partisan thing. You'll you'll find people who, for all intents and purposes, line up you know, broadly on his side of the political spectrum, and yet still are, are outraged by his lack of voting.
1: That's right, and I think p- part of it might have to do with something you mentioned earlier, which is people recognize that institutional change is very important, and they think, okay, to really, change the world for the better over the long term, what we have to do is make our political institutions better. And so if you're not contributing to that effort, you're doing something wrong. And so as I I mentioned earlier, I'm not persuaded by that argument, but I think this is is maybe part of what explains why people are still really upset with somebody like Kaepernick for not voting, even though he donates. The thought is something like, well, the donation is simply treating the symptoms. And if we really want to Fix, fix the root of the problem. We have to change institutions. The way we do that is via voting. And so if you don't vote, you're not really contributing to a solution to the root problem.
0: That leads nicely to my next question. I hear this a lot from older people. They'll often say things like, people fought and died for your right to vote. And if you don't use rights, you, you lose them. They atrophy like muscles. I wonder if that's partly what's going on here. People have that rattling around in the back of their minds.
1: That could be, Uh, and so I've heard something similar, which is, right, people have fought extremely hard and made very significant sacrifices for the right to vote. I have a couple of thoughts on that. So one is, you can say that a particular right is very important without claiming that it is an obligation for everyone to exercise that right. An example might be freedom of the press. Very important that we have a free press. I think that's correct. But I also don't think each particular individual is obligated to start their own newspaper or blog. I mean, that, would be, that might be a bad world. <laughs> and maybe this is the world we're coming to, is where everybody has their own blog. But I don't think you have a moral obligation to have your own blog. Even though I want people to have this right protected, Uh, And so similarly, I I totally agree that the right to vote is uh, very important. It's a very valuable institution, Uh, but that just doesn't imply that each particular individual has a right to vote. And also that I think there's an argument in this neighborhood as well that says, uh, if if you don't vote, you're, you're sort of not expressing the right sort of gratitude toward the people who fought for the right to vote. But I think it's possible to honor somebody's sacrifices in the service of defending a right without exercising that right itself. So uh, you might say something like, you could just write a nice op-ed uh, honoring people who, who have written, or I'm sorry, uh, who have fought for the right to vote and say like this, this was a really great thing and they should be celebrated for it. I think that's a perfectly fitting expression of gratitude even though it doesn't involve doing the
0: same thing that they, they fought for. All right, Chris, so you've persuaded me that votes perhaps in California don't matter. You've used this example several times, right? There's like 40 million people in California. It's probably going for Biden. I mean, I suppose it's possible it goes for Trump, but it seems extraordinarily unlikely, right? But what about voters in swing states? I get this a lot, like Florida in in 2000 or maybe Ohio in like 2020, right? Like if I'm a swing voter, surely it's more incumbent upon me to vote than if I live in California.
1: I, that, that's right. So I think the odds, so, so this depends on, on who you ask, but I, I think there's good reason to believe that depending on the state that you live in, there's a non-trivial chance that your vote could make a difference. So if you live in one of a handful of swing states, maybe the odds of, of influencing the outcome are, are 1 in 10 million. Just say, that's not terrible. It's a lot better than California. And so maybe you should cast the vote in that state. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. So so one, one general initial point about this is that if that's true, so if you say, well, you have a duty to vote only if you live in one of these states, that wouldn't establish a general duty to vote. It would only establish a duty to vote if you are in certain sorts of circumstances. So at most, even if that argument goes through, it wouldn't show that the duty to vote is like the duty to keep your promises, or not hurt people. So we say everybody has that duty. It doesn't matter whether you live in California or Colorado, you should keep your promises. Uh, but if we say you only have a duty to vote in a swing state, then you're, you're not going to get that general duty to vote. Uh, so that's just a, an initial remark about that. I think another worry that I have about the claim, so you'll, you'll read articles and say, well, if you live in a swing state for like 40 minutes of work. You can cast this vote, which is worth like thousands of dollars. You'll see articles like this popping up every now and then around election season. The problem is with those, sor- with those sorts of arguments is they just kind of stipulate uh, the value difference between candidates. So they say like if one candidate is $300 billion better than the other, then it's worth $1,000. And I say, oh, okay. uh okay, that, that's fine. Like I could buy that. But, but I also wanna see the math. I wanna see why you think that the one candidate is worth $300 billion more than the other. I'm not skeptical that that is the case, uh, but I, but I, you know, I wanna see, the, I want to see the, uh, the evidence for it. Um, and and a, a reason to think that these calculations are not really easy to do, that we can't just wing it and say, well, intuitively, I think that this candidate is better than the other one, is because a, a lot of these estimates just depend on predictions that are hard to make. So predictions about what one candidate would do in office as opposed to another. Even if you knew what they were going to do, you have to make predictions about the long-term effects of different policies. So you say, this this politician might try to work for this policy. That one will work for this other policy. Uh, What are the likely effects of that? You have to know stuff about social science. So you say, okay, maybe this candidate's better on immigration and education. Uh, maybe this other candidate is better on, uh, you know, criminal justice, uh, climate change, or something like that. You say, okay, well, like, how much better is it, this candidate on this issue? How much better is that candidate on that issue? And that just takes a lot of work. And I think even if you put the work in, you shouldn't have a ton of confidence in your estimates. And so this makes the case for swing state voting less compelling, because for one, it's not just 40 minutes of effort. It's not just You register to vote, you go to the polls, you cast your vote, and you go home. It's you're doing a lot of homework, and that homework has an opportunity cost. So every hour you spend preparing your vote is an hour that's not spent doing other things that have high impact. So maybe you spend that time working overtime and sending that money to an effective charity. Maybe you spend that time volunteering at an understaffed soup kitchen or something like that. The opportunity cost starts to rise. And then still, even even if you put in the work, it's just not clear how confident you can be in your political judgment. Now I will say, so this is uh, my concession that I'll make. I think, and this goes back to something we were saying earlier, perhaps this election is is different. Uh, So I actually do think that the value difference between candidates is pretty clear in this case for, for a variety of reasons. So I would, in fact, go on record and say, if you are a swing state voter, uh, you should go and vote for Joe Biden. Uh, so I, I'm confident in saying that for this election. But I think for other elections, it's going to be more difficult.
0: You alluded to doing your homework before casting a vote, that one can't just go to the polls and, and check the appropriate boxes. And I take it what you're getting at there is that voting well requires knowledge of what the candidates are going to do, the kinds of policies they should pursue in order to achieve certain policy outcomes. And this seems to require knowledge, right? So voting well seems to require knowledge most people don't have, and there's opportunity cost to getting that knowledge. But on the other hand, if I'm like in California, for example, if my vote doesn't matter, then why does it matter if I vote well? You could put the question another way, which is if an individual vote doesn't matter, then an individual bad vote doesn't either.
1: Uh, uh, no, I think that's right. So, so you could say, look, if you're, if, if you're, a, single, you know, if you're a single individual in, in California, you're just casting the one vote, and you say, that doesn't really matter if I'm gonna cast a, an informed vote or an uninformed vote, I'll say, no, it, it doesn't really matter. Although you might say, well, why are you even taking the time to go to the polls and cast a bad vote? Um, I think the best case for, for this duty to acquire knowledge is if you think, okay, uh, I have a non-trivial chance of impacting the outcome, so I wanna make sure it's a good one. I think that's a good reason to cast an informed vote. Now, there there are other reasons why other people might want you to cast an informed vote. So if you think that your duty to vote is a duty to contribute to uh, collectively beneficial activities or something like that, well then to make a good contribution, even if the contribution is not consequential, you would need to do some research to make sure that you're contributing to something good, the election of the right candidate, rather than something bad. Uh, if you're not persuaded by that style of argument for a duty to vote, which I'm not, and we could talk about that if you want, uh, then I would say, yeah, I mean, if you're gonna vote uh, where, where the, the vote has really no chance of making a difference, you say, yeah, it's like not a really big deal if you cast a bad vote, although well, then I might question why you're, you're going to the polls at all, just spend that time at the, at the soup kitchen.
0: Well, I mean, I might go to the polls and vote for someone for the same reason you go to a um, an Eagles game, right? It's fun, right? I used to, well, I mean, a little aside here. When I was an undergrad, I used to love election night, but it wasn't because I thought my vote mattered. It was just the pageantry, and it's exciting, and like who's going to win, and what are the talking points, and is someone going to throw a chair, you know, that kind of stuff, right? It's It's fun, and you might think... The downside, though, is that it opens up voting as like a way to signal tribal affiliation and you know, cultural differences, which politics is already enough of that anyway, these days, right?
1: So I love that you brought the Eagles into it. I could go for hours talking about the Eagles. Not, maybe not so much the start of this season. It's been, it's been a little rocky. But, but right, so, so I think that's, that's correct. I, I mean, in terms of why, so this is this kind of perennial question. Why do so many people actually vote if the vote doesn't make a difference? on an individual level. And I think the explanation you give is is exactly the right one. I cheer for the Eagles. You know, I'll, I'll jump up and down when I'm watching them on TV. And I'll cheer for them when I'm watching them on TV. And say, well, that's weird. Like, that's not gonna make a difference. That's right, it's not gonna make a difference, but that's expressing who I am as, as a uh, Philadelphia Eagles fan. And that's why people vote, even though it doesn't make a difference, they're expressing their identity as a, as a good Democrat or a good Republican or what have you. And I think that's, you know, if you do that, if, if a single individual does that, you know, no big deal. But the problem is, of course, that lots of people are doing this because lots of people face the exact same incentive where they say, well, the cost of, of just voting to express my social identity is really low because it's not going to make a difference we get some sort of non-trivial benefit from it. In the same way I get non-trivial benefit from cheering on the Eagles. But of course, everybody starts doing this and then we have lots of people going to the polls and they're just voting on the basis of a kind of partisan bias. And then we get bad outcomes because we're not holding leaders responsible for bad policies. We just pick and choose them on the basis of our partisan affiliation.
0: Right, which also brings up another puzzle, something that people say a lot, which is that, you know, get out to vote, go out and vote, you have a duty. they'll they'll tell people just in large groups to vote, right? Use use public service announcements and celebrities. I've always been puzzled by that, though, because it seems like who they vote for matters. Like, I don't really want... Like, if I think my side's right and the other side's wrong, I don't want the other side's voters to vote. They're wrong, right? Their policies are bad. That's why I'm not voting for them. Why would there be a generalized duty to vote? Wouldn't there be, like, a duty to vote, like, if you get the facts right or or if you get the right side?
1: Yeah, so I'm sympathetic
0: to, to your view
1: maybe one argument is that you should vote simply as a way of of making your voice heard and maybe that's sort of important in itself although i'm not entirely persuaded by that partly because so i mean it would be strange to say um you know go out and vote uh so you you tell the person who's uh in favor of higher taxes go out and vote and then you tell the person who's in favor of lower taxes go out and vote and go okay aren't those aims at odds with each other it would be like you know if you're uh, yeah, you, you tell one person, it's really important that you uh, turn on the lights. You say, okay. But it's also really important for you to go turn off the lights. Say, huh, that's a little strange that you're telling them each to do this thing that's going to uh, be at odds with the other one. So I think that's, that's a little strange. And yeah, so I think if, so one thing that people say with respect to, to my view in the book is that, well, it's not a big deal if one person or you know, two people read your book and abstain from voting, but if lots of people start abstaining, that's going to be really bad. To say, okay, well, maybe what you want to do is, you know, not broadcast this idea that you shouldn't vote, but just like tell people, like it's really important that you vote uh, and it's really important that you vote well. So if you go to the polls, you actually have to do some research. You actually have to do some debiasing, biasing uh, And it's maybe like, you know, it, it, as long as not too many people buy my message, that's, that's okay but what we should be telling the public is go out and vote and vote. Well, I say like, all right, like, you know, you, you could do that. And, but, but what I, what I appreciate is when people worry that, that I, Chris Freiman, will unravel American democracy because they say, don't publish this book. You're going to persuade millions of people not to vote. And I tell them that I love the flattery that they think I'm this influential. Um, and I say, you know, if, I know I'm not that influential because I, I ask people who pose this objection to me, uh, have I persuaded you not to vote with my arguments? And they go, no, I'm still gonna vote. And I say, there you go, that's how you know I'm not gonna cause millions of people to stop voting. So, so, you know, my view is, yeah, it's, it's probably a good thing if we have sufficiently many people out there casting good votes, casting informed votes and the biased votes, but that does not obligate you as a single individual to vote, just as it's good that we have sufficiently many people farming, Uh, teaching, you know, uh, students how to read and so on and so forth. Those are all very important things. We don't need everybody to do it. We just need sufficiently many people to do it.
0: Yeah, I love that your project is predicated on its own failure. Uh, (laughs) uh, I
1: I feel safe in predicting that.
0: And also, if you really were that influential, I doubt you'd be teaching at the College of William & Mary and talking to me. You'd probably be on a beach somewhere with your feet up, uh, drinking (laughs) a... A Mai Tai or something, right?
1: That's right. And I say, look, you know, I'll, I, I might reevaluate in a couple of years. So if my book is like a number one bestseller and I become a millionaire and I'm on, you know, the front page of the New York Times and CNN, then what I might do is, is recant and publish a second edition and say why I was totally wrong about all this stuff. So I will say, if that happens, that's my plan. I'm not holding my breath. But, you know, let, let's remain open to the possibility.
0: They are, I think, getting at something though. Um, so I hear this a lot, like if everybody, didn't, if everybody didn't vote, democracy wouldn't work. And I sort of wonder, I mean, if you take it as a straightforward argument, it's a terrible one. I mean, that would show that like everyone should farm, because if nobody farmed, we'd starve to death. But I wonder if really what they're getting at when, when folks launch this objection is something like a free rider. Like you enjoy the fruits of democracy. It's one thing to be like, well, you know, that doesn't show as an individual you should vote. Well, yeah, Chris, fine, but you're enjoying the fruits of a at least semi functioning democracy. Shouldn't you contribute your fair share of what you enjoy?
1: Yeah, good. So I think that's a stronger variation on the, the what if everybody did that. Because, like you said, the what if everybody did that argument has too many counterexamples. Uh, so you is like, what if everybody became a philosophy professor? You say, well, I don't know if that would be, that's like, what if everybody became a blogger? Maybe not so great. It doesn't mean it's immoral to become a blogger or a philosophy professor. Um, so, so, right. So I think the better version of that is more like, well, it's, it's bad when lots of people are doing this thing that's beneficial and that you benefit from, and you're not pitching in your fair share. I think that's the best version of that argument. I think Jason Brennan, in his book, The Ethics of Voting, has a pretty persuasive response to this, which is just, look, you can contribute to justice and the common good in ways other than voting so voting is one way of making the world a more just place but there are other ways and you don't have to contribute in exactly the same way so maybe one person says i want to address the issue of homelessness and food insecurity with my vote i say okay that's good i say but i want to address the issue of uh, food insecurity and homelessness with effective donations to organizations that address those problems. It seems like both of us are making perfectly fine contributions to uh, the project of alleviating uh, food insecurity and homelessness. And I would even take it a step further and say, it's probably optimal that not everybody's contributing in the same way. So in the same way that, you know, we'd say, it's more people would get fed if we have a division of labor where lots of people farm, but not everybody farms. So like some people farm, but other people run grocery stores, other people run food banks and so on. That will result in more people getting fed than a world in which everybody's farming. And similarly, I I think it's pretty reasonable to say a world in which let's say sufficiently many people vote well to tackle the problem of food insecurity, let's say. So lots of people are doing that, but other people say, look, that, that, you know, that's taken care of. We have sufficiently many people working on the voting. Uh, And so now I'm freed up to tackle the problem of food insecurity in another way, in a way that's actually going to have more impact. So I'll take the time I would have spent preparing my vote, uh, and I'll use that again, maybe working at the understaffed soup kitchen or uh, earning extra money to donate and so forth. I think both of of those are uh, perfectly permissible ways of making a contribution to justice in the common good
0: what you just said that sufficiently number, a sufficient number of voters vote well. Are you alluding to the diminishing marginal returns
1: of voting well? Uh, Say a bit
0: more about what you have in in mind
1: with that before before I respond.
0: Fair enough. Uh, So you might think like, look, as long as you have a certain percentage of the population that votes well, uh, that will preserve certain institutions and norms, et cetera, um, that, that help democracy flourish, adding more votes to that pile isn't gonna do much good, you, could, you should use that effort and time elsewhere, right? Kind of like after a certain point, if I get so good at driving, like, there's no point in like, becoming an even better driver, right?
1: Right, so, so you say, right, so for each additional voter, the value of the vote dec- declines. So it's not acquiring more information about voting, uh, about right. how to yeah.
0: That also so the number of people who vote well, there's a certain threshold beyond that, you, you, you just lose value and then eventually becomes like negative value. Like you just could be using that time and effort elsewhere.
1: That, that, that's exactly right. So, so this is also another sort of uh, cheeky response to the what if everybody stopped voting? And they say, well, okay, then, then I would vote. If everybody else stopped voting, then I would vote because the value of my vote would be super high. But then you say we have hundreds of millions of votes, and you add one more to the pile, and you're like, "Well, on the margin, what's the value of that?" And it's like, like you said, zero. And then once you start putting in more and more time and effort to make every vote a good one, it's like, "Wow, that's a lot of opportunity cost uh, for for almost no payoff." And so, so I think that's right. So it's like again, suppose you have a surplus of farmers. Say, okay, well then w- w- I'm not actually helping people get fed by adding another farmer to the pile. Uh, what I should do is, like I said, you know run a soup kitchen or a grocery store or something like that. And so similarly, you say, look, we've got so many voters, my vote's not gonna make a difference, so let me just take the time that I could have invested in that, use it elsewhere, and channel it into some sort of endeavor that that will actually make an impact and actually help people.
0: You've you've mentioned several times about, um, you know, working in a soup kitchen or working overtime and donating it to like a good charity, an effective charity. And you've also alluded to the fact that I think a lot of people suspect their vote as an individual vote doesn't really matter that much. It doesn't decide things. So I'm wondering if in the background, and and I'm asking you to speculate here, but I'm wondering if what's going on at least partly in the background is that given the value assigned to voting in society, I can more effectively signal by voting, like signal my pro-sociality, like I'm pro-social, I'm cooperative, I'm altruistic than, say, putting in the hard work of actually volunteering in a soup kitchen, what sounds like it would be a pain in the butt, right? Like, right. I could get a boost to my moral reputation much more cheaply voting. I kind of wonder if that's partly what's going on here, too. Uh, I definitely think that's part of what's going on. And
1: it, yes, it, it is speculation on my part, but maybe some evidence in support of this idea is the prevalence of the I voted sticker. Uh, and I say, look, so if you really, so my view is like, if you really want the cheapest way of signaling like you said, maybe that you're a concerned citizen or something like that. Here's what you do, go onto Amazon. And I think for like 10 bucks, you can get a roll of, I don't know, like a thousand of those stickers. And then just every election day, is you don't even have to spend the time voting, just pop one of those babies on your shirt and you get all the signaling benefits for a very low cost. But then you could say, okay, like that, I think that works is very plausible as an explanation for why people are doing it. They might say, okay, but is that, is that a good reason? is this a moral reason for voting? I'm gonna say no. Uh, and I talk a little bit about the expressive stuff in the book where I say like, well, it's, it's, if it's like a hollow gesture, um, then that might even be a little bit bad. It's like when your friend, you know, your friend is sick or something like that and needs rides to the doctor, maybe needs to get prescriptions filled and stuff like that. And instead of actually helping them, actually taking them to the doctor or getting prescriptions for them, you just say, oh, my thoughts are with you during this time. You're like, like, uh, okay, like, I don't know what exactly you've signaled there. I'm not sure it's virtue. And similarly, it's like, well, if you really care about things like poverty, um, food insecurity, injustice, and so on, voting is kind of like the, well, my thoughts are with you. It doesn't really make, it, it's, it's, it's low effort, uh, and it doesn't actually make a difference. And so I say, if you care about those things, uh, what you should do is engage in activities that will actually help solve those problems, not just signal that you care about these problems.
0: And in fact, if you, just as a quick aside, if you wanted to cheaply signal, you don't want everyone voting because then it just becomes baseline. Like my signal doesn't pop, right? That, like if yeah. everybody votes, then like not voting is the problem. So voting just gets me baseline. Whereas if a lot of people don't vote, then I can stand out by voting.
1: That's, that's really interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. So maybe right to so the ultimate is like very few people vote and then you can probably display the, I voted sticker and you really stand out. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting point. So maybe that's, so maybe this is another reason why people shouldn't get too upset about my book, because if I do persuade lots of people not to vote, then their I voted sticker is going to have a lot of signaling power.
0: Yeah. That, some I voted uh, inflation going on there. <laughs>
1: that's, oh, right. Definitely. that's right.
0: I wanted to push you kind of hard on something that puzzles me about your work and Jason Brennan's work. I mean, probably other uh, political scientists and philosophers work on this stuff, too. Given that people are really, really bad at voting well, I mean, it just seems like to to cast a vote for president, let's say, it seems like it requires a lot. Like, I I need stuff about, like, I need expertise in international relations and economics and, like, food issues and like there's just all kinds of things that presidents and senators and congress people work on that i would need quite a bit of knowledge and it's even difficult for experts sometimes to make these kinds of calls not to mention things like motivated reasoning confabulation all the sorts of biases that you know people can be very tribal isn't it better than if like nobody voted (laughs) like (laughs) Because it seems like the effort you'd have to put into it, like there's a risk you'd get it wrong. Um, intentions aren't the same thing as outcomes. What are politicians actually going to do? I mean, there's just so many questions. It just doesn't seem like voting is a good idea for any of us. Am I, am I, am I taking things too far? So, so you might be, but I'm also
1: not entirely sure how to, how to stop going too far because I have the similar sort of worry. So, right, so there's just a lot of knowledge you would need. And, but even more so than that, you mentioned motivated reasoning. This is something that I'm really, really worried about because we don't have great correctives to politically motivated reasoning. So the the worry is you can present people with information about let's say the effectiveness of gun control or something like that. And the way that they'll process that information is going to be influenced by their partisan bias. So it's not just an information problem. You can give people the information but they're going to selectively affirm or deny information that flatters their partisan biases. And I think this is also a problem with a move that people make to try to uh, explain why the problem of voter ignorance is not too bad. They say, well, you could just use heuristics. Uh, so like look at an opinion leader or something like that. It's like, well, okay, but if, if the person that you choose as your opinion leader is you know, somebody who just shares all of your partisan biases, then it's not really clear to me that we've made progress here. Does not mean that nobody should vote? Uh, Probably probably not that nobody should vote. I mean, maybe we say that people who have reason to think that they're maybe comparatively good at voting, uh, maybe they should do it. But I think what you would need is actually solid evidence that you're going, because everybody thinks they're comparatively good at voting. And I would say, no, I want some evidence that you're comparatively good. And, you know, the the mere fact. So people like, well, you know, I've thought a lot about these issues and that makes me comparatively good. Like maybe I'm open to that. But it might also mean that you're um, even more likely to engage in politically motivated reasoning in the same way that, you know, I've thought you you, you open Pandora's box by talking about the Eagles. I'm going to bring them back in. I spent a ton of time uh, thinking about the Philadelphia Eagles. Does this mean that I'm equipped to give you an unbiased judgment about whether Carson Wentz is better than Dak Prescott? Probably not. In fact, probably you shouldn't trust me precisely because I do spend so much time talking with you. Um, and so, like I said, I, I, I'm, very, I'm worried about the same thing that you're worried about, that this problem just looks awful. Uh, but I think maybe we say if you're comparatively good and you have evidence, that's okay. But, but one other thing too that I'd like to mention uh, is following up on this point that you know you might get it wrong. And I think this is another reason not to be super enthusiastic about the swing state voting stuff. Because if you think there's a really high chance that you're gonna get it wrong, then what that means is you know, if you vote in a swing state and oh look, you actually did change the outcome of the election, well there's like a decent chance you've, you've changed it for the worse and you're gonna like hurt a lot of people. And so there's a risk involved. In voting in a swing state. And if you think, hmm, I should be self skeptical of my judgments about which candidate is better, and I think in many cases we should be self skeptical, I think that's a further reason to not vote. We say it's like, you know, I, I donate some money to the Against Malaria Foundation. That's pretty low risk. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a pretty good chance that that's gonna do good. You vote in a swing state, you change the outcome of the election, uh, there's a pretty high risk that you're gonna do a lot of bad. And so I think it's sensible to say, well, you know what? I'm not comfortable with that level of risk. Uh, and so I'm just going to spend the time I would have spent prepping my vote earning money for the Against Malaria Foundation.
0: We often hear that institutions like the Senate or um, the Electoral College are undemocratic. And I'm wondering, and, and by design. So if you, if you go back and look at the original intent of the Senate, it was not, it was not to be democratic. Um, but I'm wondering if that's a bad thing. Like, if if what you're saying is true, maybe that's a good thing, that it's not democratic.
1: Well, so I want to remain agnostic about uh, institutional questions for the the purposes of my argument about a duty to participate. So sometimes uh, people say, look, um, if you're saying there's no duty to vote, doesn't this somehow imply that democracy is not a valuable institution or a dysfunctional institution or, or, or something like that? i want to say, no, that doesn't follow. So, you know, I would say you don't have a duty absent special circumstances to become a volunteer firefighter. That doesn't imply that uh, fire departments are not valuable institutions. It just means it's, it's totally okay to have a division of labor. So some people can be volunteer firefighters, but that doesn't mean you have to. So similarly, it's good that sufficiently many people are voting well, uh, but that doesn't mean that you have to. Now I will say, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, so I would say, my, I think democracy is a valuable institution, although I'm perhaps not quite as enthusiastic as a lot of political philosophers about it. But I also think, you know, there's a question of what, what our standards should be. So I think we say, look, um, you know, as Amartya Sen said, uh, you know, demo- functioning democracies don't have famines. And in world historical terms, that's, that's pretty darn good. And democracies have lots of flaws and all this stuff we've been talking about with respect to rational voter ignorance. I think these are, these are real problems. I think they're more problematic than a lot of political philosophers think they are. Um, but nevertheless, I'd say, well, you know, what's, what's the comparison here? Um, like real world comparisons, democracies versus other stuff. The democracies do, do pretty well. But I also, like I said, just to, to reiterate, I want to officially remain agnostic about what particular kinds of political institutions or democratic institutions are best. I wanna say you can be the world's greatest fan of democracy and still buy my argument.
0: It seems on the one hand like the value of vote in our society is inflated. We assign too much value, and by we, I mean collectively, to voting uh, that it merits. And this is something I'm interested in in particular, I'm wondering if you think that assigning or inflating the value of a vote exacerbates moral um, moral licensing. Moral licensing is the phenomenon I want to work by. Do like I was really good yesterday, so I can be really bad today, right? Kind of like dieting. Like I was really good on my diet for this week, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have a blowout on Saturday to to uh, to celebrate. And this seems like it would be if this is true, it would be bad, right? You would be psychologically prepping or predisposing people to act worse than they would otherwise because they think they have a license to. Am I, is that crazy or is there something to that?
1: No, I don't think that's crazy at all. And in fact, I toyed with the idea of writing a bit about that, but then I started to, like, some of the moral licensing stuff uh, hasn't replicated and so I'm scared to death about doing anything that, that bears on social psychology these days given, given the replication crisis. But I actually think it's extremely plausible um, that people say, well, look, I, I did my duty for the common good by casting a vote. And so, you know, if you know, if I'm not giving very much money to charity this year, well, that's okay, because I've already done my part with a vote, something like that. I think that's extremely plausible. Um, and, and I also think so this is part of what motivates my view and, and motivated writing the book, which is we just place so much emphasis on voting relative to other moral duties. And I don't think it's healthy. So this isn't to say, uh, collectively, voting well is not valuable. I think collectively it tends to be if we do it well. Um, but for any particular individual, you could just do so much good for the world, so much more good for the world by ignoring politics, unplugging from politics, and spending that time doing something that, that will actually result in, in people getting fed or uh, people being cured of an illness or something like that. But we don't really place a whole lot of evidence on that. So it's, you know, people will read Peter Singer and they'll be like, oh yeah, he's got a point. Like maybe we have this moral duty to give to the Against Malaria Foundation or something like that. But if I don't do it, like it's not a big deal. But if I don't vote, that's a huge deal. I'm, I'm morally reprehensible for not voting. And I think this is, this is a really um, kind of skewed way of looking at our moral duties where we have these opportunities to have a huge impact, to potentially save lives, literally. But we don't place nearly as much emphasis on that as we do voting, even though voting's not gonna make a difference.
0: If you could flip a switch and change one thing about the US political system, and I'm relevant to democracy, voting, that sort of thing, uh, what would it be and why?
1: Well, that's a a great question. So I think, I don't know, maybe this is not what you have in mind when you're talking about political system. but I would say, I think right now, probably our biggest obstacle is just this, this unbelievable amount of partisan polarization that we have. Uh, and, and there are, are, are various sorts of solutions that people have uh, put forth as a, as a way to sort of combat this. But I think this is a really big problem right now, um, where people see the other side as not just honestly mistaken about how to make the world a better place, but as is, is downright evil. And some of the evidence we're getting is really shocking where you have 15 to 18% of partisans saying something like, it would be a good thing if large numbers of the out party died, just died. I mean, this is not a healthy situation for us to be in. And uh, so, so politics is, has become partisan warfare uh, and it's also swallowing up so much of our non-political lives. So, you know, the, the, the grocery store that you shop at signal something about your politics. So if you go to Whole Foods, as opposed to Walmart, this says something, like the car you drive says something, the music you listen to, the TV you watch, like, whoa, politics is just swallowing up so much of our social identity, and we've become incredibly combative towards the other side. And I think this is, this is a huge problem. I'm frankly not, not sure how to fix it, but I think if we could, if we could just say, look, these are obviously important questions, they have, a lot of, of, of real world significance, how you know getting these things right mat, uh, matters quite a bit, but people can be genuinely mistaken or, or, or they can genuinely believe something uh, that you disagree with without them being a bad person. And now that's not to say that like all political views are uh, fine or equally good or that there aren't political views that are reprehensible. It's like, no, I think that there are political views that are reprehensible. I think the mere fact uh, that somebody votes for a different party than you, that in and of itself doesn't establish that they're a terrible person. And if anything, they're probably voting for the same sorts of reasons that you are. This sort of politically motivated reasoning stuff where it's like, well, they're just kind of voting uh, in accordance with their partisan group. And probably that's what you're doing. So there's no reason to think that they're, you know absent other sorts of evidence, there's no reason to think they're doing anything worse than you. And I think if we could get to that point or get closer to that point where we see Politics is as, as a, a, a way of you know, enabling us to live together despite our disagreements, and not partisan warfare
0: we would be better off. I think that's exactly right. Um, I t- not that I'm very influential, but I try and tell people, if you meet someone on the other side, you know, your uncle who's a crazed Trump supporter over Thanksgiving dinner, uh, and you don't like that very much, uh, perhaps start with something you agree about. Right? Maybe you agree more than you think. And I think that's exactly, that's very healthy. And if you want people in large groups to die, you've probably misunderstood them. That's, that's probably not a good way to-, to Yeah, think.
1: it's a bad sign. It's a very bad sign.
0: So to get make this a little personal, do you vote? And if so, why? And if not, what do you do instead? No, I don't vote. I don't vote. I
1: voted um, when I was 18. That was my, my, I was young and naive. I was a college freshman and I voted Who was it? It was whoever the Libertarian candidate was at the time. And I can't remember who that was, Um, but that was the last time I voted. And so in terms of what I do instead, so that's a good question. And I think this is also something that uh, is important to clarify. So when I say, you know, take the time that you would have spent voting um, and and, or prepping your vote and spend it doing something that's more impactful. Uh, I don't think it has to be a one to one thing where you say, okay. I'm putting this in my calendar. Like this is the time I would have prepped voting and therefore I have to volunteer at the soup kitchen at that time. But I think if you understand what it takes to vote well, if you say, okay, I could do that. So this involves more than just watching TV and getting upset when you hear the out party say something. If you say, no, like I'm really uh, interested in, in in learning what it would take to cast a good vote. You say, okay, well, that probably involves some kind of research, some kind of attempt at debiasing. So it's like you really have to buckle down and put in work to so say, OK, I could do that or I could just forget about all that. Like I, I'm not going to put in that work. But in my spare time, time that I could have spent doing that, and again, it doesn't have to be like the same time Monday at 10 a.m. or anything like that. But you say like uh, occasionally I'll work an extra month of uh, or an extra hour of overtime or maybe like once a month. I try to work a little bit of overtime, like an hour a month, two hours a month or something like that. Uh, and then you know maybe you invest that wisely and then maybe 10, 20 years down the line, you got tens of thousands of dollars, whatever the case may be, and then you, you, you make a big donation. That's kind of what I have in mind. And so that's sort of what I do instead. So I have to confess, I'm, not, uh, I'm far from perfect when it comes to ignoring politics. I, w- I wish I were better. That's an indictment of me rather than my advice. It's like if your doctor tells you not to smoke and you catch them smoking, that doesn't mean you should start smoking. It just means that your doctor is doing something wrong. Uh, but but what I try to do is you know, take on as much, uh, or take as many opportunities as I can to earn extra income, uh, which I can then, then donate to the Against Malaria Foundation. So that's basically what I do. I do the, the good old fashioned Peter Singer thing. I donate to the Against Malaria Foundation. Uh, I also donate it to uh, an animal charity, um, because like, you know, that aims to reduce animal suffering, because like, I'm not quite sure what's like the highest impact way of donating if it's against malaria, So I don't know. But that's long story short what I do. Uh, I try to find opportunities to earn uh, income that I can in turn donate to effective charities.
0: The book, Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics. The author, Christopher Fryman, of the College of William and Mary. So Chris, is there any way, anywhere people should go if they want to find out more about you and your work? or current projects, upcoming stuff? Sure, they
1: can go to my website, which is just uh, cfryman.com, although I've got to update that. I think that's pretty old. You can find both of my books on Amazon, and I also blog at uh, 200proofliberals.com. I think if if you go to all those places, you'll have your bases covered.
0: Sounds good, Chris. Thanks for coming on the show. It was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks for having me. It was great.